Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Channel Africa ikitangaza kutoka Johannesburg, Afrika Kusini. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and you can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Joanani Tulo as well as Nosile Zuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Cameroon's indigenous people proved to be COVID-free. What is their secret? Police have been deployed in parts of Ivory Coast to prevent protests against the candidacy of Alassane Outara uh, for a third term. And authorities in Malawi have not yet gotten any report from Lake Malawi Wrangle mediators since the new government was ushered in. Right now, though, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Joel Anitolo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good afternoon. Leader of South Africa's opposition DA, John Stianazen, says it is time for South Africans to go back to work and start rebuilding the economy. This as the national state of disaster legislation under which the country's lockdown has been premised expires on Saturday. It is widely expected that President Cyril Ramaphosa will in the next few days update the nation on whether the country will move to a lower alert lockdown level following Tuesday's meeting of the National Coronavirus Command Council. Stianazen says enough is enough. There is a general agreement that a second wave is unlikely, but not impossible. Either way, we cannot hide from the virus forever while our lives and our livelihoods fall apart. We need to learn to live with it since it's still to be with us for many months, perhaps even years. While we must all continue to wear our masks and adhere to safety protocols, we need to pick up the pieces and start to rebuild our shattered economy which has lost over a trillion rand and three million South Africans have been pushed into the unemployment queue due to this long, irrational, secretive, brutally hard lockdown. Russia's health minister has dismissed international criticism of what the government in Moscow says is a new coronavirus vaccine is absolutely groundless. Russia has announced the drug has has been given regulatory approval. After less than two months of testing on humans, the BBC's Danny Aberhart has the story. The global hunt for a vaccine or vaccines against coronavirus is primarily about health and the economy. But other factors also figure, including national prestige. Russia is the first country to approve one. 
Its health minister, Mikhail Murashko, insists the vaccine is safe. He suggested the criticism could have been motivated by competition. But international experts believe Russia has cut corners in the rush to get approval. The vaccine, named Sputnik, has yet to enter phase three clinical trials, which involve more widespread human testing. Militants are reported to have seized a key port in Mozambique after days of fighting. The rebels have ties to the Islamic State group. The BBC's Andrew Harding reports. This is a heavy blow for Mozambique's security forces. Low on ammunition and facing a large, well-coordinated rebel attack, government troops are reported to have abandoned Mosimboa de Praia, with many soldiers fleeing by boat. The question now is whether the rebels will, as they've hinted, try to hold on to this strategic city. That would mark a new escalation in a shadowy conflict that represents a major threat to Mozambique and to international plans to develop vast offshore gas fields. Kenyans living in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, have been demonstrating outside the consular office, demanding to be flown back home. Several videos and photos of the Kenyans sitting outside the office late in the night have been shared online. The Kenyans, who are mostly women, are believed to be domestic workers who lost their jobs after the explosion. Kenya's ambassador to Kuwait, Halima Mahmoud, has been quoted by the Nairobi News website as saying that the stranded Kenyans would be repatriated. A major incident has been declared in Scotland where a passenger train has derailed after severe weather. Details are still coming in, but the Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, said they were early reports of serious injuries. A journalist, Tony Moe, says the train is reported to have encountered two landslips within a short distance of each other near the town of Stonehaven. The driver spotted a landslip. So he was advised to, uh, it appears, to take the train back to uh, Stonehaven so passengers could be taken off. And it appears the train hit a second landslip on its way back to Stonehaven. Moving on to some sporting news, South Africans are still celebrating Brad Binder after he became the first South African to win a MotoGP Premier Class race at the Czech Republic Grand Prix. It last weekend, Binder overhauled early leader Franco Mordibili of Petronas Yamaha before holding his nerve to seal victory in his only th- in only his third start in the Premier Class. The result also represents a first MotoGP win for KTM since making its full debut in 2017. Binder hopes this win is the beginning of something great. I, I honestly, I don't think it's ever going to set in. Honestly, I don't. It's the first time I won in Moto3, I thought, this is insane. Like, I was quite content with that. If that was the end, that was okay. And, you know, if we look at where we are today, it's just unbelievable. All, all with Red Bull, all with KTM. We've won in all three classes. And I hope this is the beginning of something great. And finally, Sri Lanka's cricket board has indefinitely postponed the new Premier League tournament schedule for later this month as health authorities insisted on a two-week quarantine for foreign players. Sri Lanka cricket has had announced last month that it hoped to resume top-level cricket with the Lanka Premiership LPL um, from the 28th of August with the participation of 70 international players. The local board proposed 23 matches from the 28th of August to the 20th of September. The matches were to be played at four international venues across the country. Meanwhile, the lucrative Indian Premier League IPL is due to start in the United Arab Emirates from September the 19th. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Cameroon has today ended the week-long indigenous people's activities, disclosing that no case of COVID-19 has been found in this group of persons. The Central African state is, however, educating indigenous communities who have preserved their ways of life and their own cultures, despite external influences, to respect barrier measures so as to not be infected by COVID-19. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Pygmies, Mbororos and Kedis sing in Yaoundé to invite their peers to make sure COVID-19 does not get into their communities. Cameroon's indigenous people are taking part in activities marking the International Day of the World's Indigenous Populations. Grace Bulami of the non-governmental organization Indigenous Rights is one of the organizers of the activities. She says it is imperative to stop the coronavirus from getting into their communities. She says certain traditional practices can favor fast transmission should a pygmy, Mbororo or Kidi be infected. They have this tendency to always want to hold hands and shake hands with each other. And so we went out to sensitize them that it is dangerous for themselves and for their loved ones to continue to shake hands because the pandemic spread through that method. We try to sensitize on the importance of wearing face masks, washing their hands, of social distancing. A study carried out by Indigenous Rights, the Yaoundé-based Center for Environment and Development, and the Mbororo Cultural and Development Organization, Moscuda, indicates that no indigenous person has been diagnosed with COVID-19. The first case of the coronavirus was reported in Cameroon on March 5. Since then, more than 18,000 cases have been officially confirmed. Jaji Manu Gidadu, honorary president of Moscuda, says indigenous people have been free from the virus because they hardly mix with non-indigenous communities. Indigenous people have traditional knowledge, which is something that they acquired for many years. And these people live in ecosystems that provide them with a lot of traditional herbs and knowledge that they use. And why not even talk about traditional medicine that they use to prevent and even to cure minor illnesses. So resilience means they can adapt to this illness. And since especially they live in very difficult and isolated areas where the health facilities are scarce, they have this knowledge that they can use to cure uh, minor illnesses. Even with coronavirus, you see Bourreau people, since we are talking about them, have this knowledge to take these herbs to prevent illnesses. And I think we are doing great so far, no casualty within the Bururo community as far as COVID-19 is concerned. This year's Indigenous Populations Day was observed under the theme COVID-19 and Indigenous People's Resilience. Angelica Bimondi Ambe, Director of Social Protection in Cameroon's Ministry of Social Affairs, says the government also used the opportunity to donate hand sanitizers, water basins, soap and face masks to indigenous people. They are withdrawn to the forest zone and they feel that that is their world. Their world evolves around the forest and nowhere else. So they have to be integrated into the society. The theme for this year, COVID-19 and the resilience of indigenous peoples has its place. 
When we talk of resilience, it means capacitating these people to fight against a problem, to fight COVID-19. I think it is not just for window dressing, but these people being a vulnerable group, they don't have access to maybe the information that we have, the sanitary and barrier measures. And so this year, emphasis is being laid on this COVID-19 to see how these people who are like excluded can be mainstreamed and make the fight against COVID-19 a success. We are celebrating them and we have to break the specificities, the assistance that is being given to these particular people this year as far as COVID-19 is concerned. And all the information that we have is disseminated to these people through our technical operational units. Cameroon's National Institute of Statistics reports that the Central African state with a population of 25 million people has 2 million indigenous people. Most of them live in places that are difficult to access for non-indigenous people. Indigenous Peoples Day is celebrated around the world and marks the date of the inaugural session of the Working Group on Indigenous Populations at the United Nations in That song was by Cameroon's Forest Pygmies in their report by Mokikinzeka on D Indigenous Populations Day celebrated in the Central African state for a week running. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa bringing you programming from an African perspective. Police have been deployed in uh, parts of Ivory Coast to prevent protests against the candidacy of Alassane Ouattara for a third term in the upcoming presidential election of October 31st. This comes after Ouattara announced he would run for a third term in the upcoming election, a decision which has been triggered which has triggered outrage among the opposition and civil society groups who have been uh, labeled who have labeled it as a coup that uh, risked tipping the country into chaos. The opposition claims Atara is not eligible to contest the polls because the constitution limits presidential terms to two. For more on Atara's candidacy, Channel Africa spoke to uh, Kolibali Namago, the ruling RHDP party representative in South Africa. What I want to notify first, we're not surprised because uh, as the, the, the party from the, from, the, from the ground to the top, we are the one asked Watara to reconsider his position because uh, really wanted to go and he have already uh, uh, said who was going to take after him. But unfortunately, uh, that person passed on. So in a short time of period, that left for us to organize the election that is uh, going to happen on the 31st of August, it was difficult for the party to uh, prepare somebody to get somebody ready for the um, 
uh, for the election. So we then decided uh, to please uh, next to him so that he can reconsider his decision. So we're not surprised at all because we know we know also that uh, Watara is ready to take any sacrifice on himself for the country. But um, what do you say to those who say that that talks to a lack of a proper succession plan in place and uh, you have decided to pick uh, the incumbent to stand again? All right. First of, first, first of all, we must understand that uh, we have created uh, the ERASH-DP uh, last year in January. So because initially it was uh, RDA, now we have created the RHDP only in January 2019, and we are still busy building a strong party. So, but in the next side, we have an election coming the following year. That was, uh, that is the one I'm talking about, about the 31st of uh, October. So, yeah. So the party is not because uh, they are not um, ready to create the condition for a proper succession plan. But we, are, we, we, were, we were short of time, actually. But definitely, uh, the year to come, you will understand and you will also uh, 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 see that uh, the ERASDP is a strong machine and is very organized. We but the 2016 that. constitution does not permit him to run. I'm sorry, because it does permit him to run. And this is not even a, a, is a dishonest debate the opposition is trying to bring on the table. Because the, the, the constitution is clear, and everybody, by the time we're uh, adopting the new constitution in 2016, they even called their people to, to vote against that constitution because for them it was allowing the president to run again. But suddenly, suddenly, they are coming back on their word saying that he can't run. They know that when there's a new constitution, uh, all the clock comes back to zero in terms of mandate. So, in fact, it's just dishonesty, and uh, they are trying to manipulate their people, and that is not really good for the country. I'm sure the opposition will not agree with you, Mr. Kolibali. As you know, since the announcement, there has been several reactions from the political stakeholders with regards to his eligibility to run. Is it also your concern as the governing party that the political crisis could be looming in the country as a result of Ouattara's decision? I don't think so. That is not my point of view. Because uh, on the 6th of August, when uh, Ouattara announced officially that he was going to run, Again, if you check uh, that night, the whole country were dancing and jumping because they were so happy. Did you see the pictures or the videos? I saw the pictures, but that does not uh, represent the whole country. It doesn't represent the whole country, but it's very significative compared to those who were against it that been uh, manifesting uh, recently. That With most political stakeholders already preparing to take uh, legal actions, uh, it would now be left uh, on the Constitutional Court to obviously rule on this matter. What are your expectations? My expectations are very good. Because uh, when I'm saying Watara is eligible, is based on the law, not on some kind of uh, political motivation. Okay. So, and I'm sure that the Constitutional Court will tell the law. So there is no worry on our side regarding that decision. And that was Kolibali Namago, Ivory Coast's ruling party representative in South Africa, talking to Kumbelo Munjalele.
More than 100 journalists in Sudan are said to lose their jobs by the end of this month. The journalists are employed by the Taiba Media Group, which is caught up in a row over payments made by the country's former leader, Omar al-Bashir. The decision to dismiss the journalists comes eight months after the disempowerment committee, tasked with the removal of employees and affiliates of the former regime, decided to shut down Taiba Channel Television and Taiba Radio Station and seize its headquarters in Khartoum. To discuss the plight of the affected journalists further, we are joined on the line by Omar Farouk, and he is a member of the International Federation of Journalists, which has called on the Sudanese authorities to intervene on this matter. Omar, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, could you talk to us about the plight of the journalists and why their jobs uh, are on the line? Um, yeah, well, as you know, and as you have narrated, uh, the situation in Sudan is uh, descending from bad to worst, and journalists in Sudan are being targeted. Just because the current administration uh, has perceived them or continues to perceive them being allied with the previous administration. You know, journalists are not politicians, and 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 uh, and, uh, and uh, Sudan cannot be built on a retribution. These journalists are being sacked, previously arrested, media houses closed down, the the headquarters of the Union of Journalists is crumbled down just because they are, you know, telling uh, you know some important critical issues which the current administration does not like, or they are being targeted because. Uh, uh, they are being perceived that they were uh, sort of working with or um, cooperating with the previous administration. And we believe that the latter is the main cause. And this is totally unacceptable. Um, uh, you know, Sudan belongs to all Sudanese, not only particular administration of, of the, the administration of the day or the government of the day, and particularly for media and journalists to become a bottleneck is unacceptable. What has happened lately? to sack a hundred, more than 100 journalists just because uh, they are perceived of being, uh, having connection with the biggest uh, administration is totally unacceptable. It is a, a, a gross violation of human and labor rights. It is an abuse of the rules of law in, in, in Sudan and the international uh, the labor standards. And that is why the International Federation of Journalists and the Federation of African Journalists have both condemned and demanded, uh, you know, the the the, 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 the sacked journalists to, to be uh, reinstated and 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 their rights are respected. All right. And did the government appointed administrator provide any reasons as to why a unilateral decision was taken on this matter without consulting the affected journalists? That is the, that is that has been the case uh, since they assumed to the office, and uh, the main reason that they were doing this is just to, to undermine uh, uh, um, the independence of the media, the independence of the journalist union. As you know, and as I said now, uh, um, the, the headquarters of the journalist uh, union is occupied by the police as we speak now. And that is why the oppression in Sudan has become uh, you know, multifaceted. And unfortunately, this situation needs to be addressed and, and the, the independence of the media, the independence of journalists and their rights, uh, including the, the work rights of journalists, need to be protected. Uh, uh, and that's why the IMJ and the FARG are calling for a concerted effort to tackle this situation. All right, and uh, you have called on the President of the Sovereignty Council and the Prime Minister to intervene. Are you optimistic that your call will be heeded? 
Well, uh, they are now in charge of the country, and they are bound by the constitution of Sudan, and they are bound by the international and African obligations on Sudan in terms of human rights. What is happening is a gross human rights violation that we can never tolerate and never accept. And this is why we call this, they are the leaders, they are held responsible, so that they, they are required that as uh, uh, you know, duty bearers of, of Sudan, they are a current duty bearers of Sudan, they have to uphold the rule of law and, and, and make sure that uh, um, this current trend is of, of targeting journalists, targeting media houses, targeting the, the journalist union to stop. All right. Uh, Omar, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. And that was Omar Farouk, member of the International Federation of Journalists, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya. The time is now 17.23 Central African time. It is time for us to take a very short break. Uh, When we come back, we are going to be talking a little bit about Malawi and what's happening over there. So be sure to stay tuned. This is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Malawi authorities have not yet gotten any report from the Lake Malawi Wrangle mediators since the new government was ushered in through the July 23rd fresh presidential election. Mediation talks have stalled for years, thereby raising concerns that the matter may not be resolved anytime soon by, form- by some former presidents in the SADC bloc. Spokesperson in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Rejoice Shumba, says that Lilongwe is poised to make the decision once they, are, once they hear from a team of mediators led by Joshim Chisano of Mozambique. George Mahango has the details from Blantyre. Lilongwe and Dodoma still fight over ownership of Lake Malawi. Former and incumbent presidents from the two nations have taken conflicting stands. The matter resurfaced during former President Joyce Banda in 2012 when Malawi's fishers were arrested by Tanzanian police. Historian Gift Kaira says Malawi under the Tonse Alliance administration should proceed with dialogue talks because that's the best way out. I think regarding the Tanzanian Malawi Lake Rangu, all facts are very clear by now. It is on record that in 1890, the British and the Germans signed the Hedicoland Treaty in which the entire lake was given to Malawi. And again, this position was affirmed in 1963 by the OAU, which is now the African Union. But it's also true that uh, according to the international law, this lake should be shared between Malawi and Tanzania. But as a nation, we should have been very much decisive 
about our position on the lake. Dr. Banda was very clear. He didn't miss any words. He told our Tanzanian counterparts that the entire lake belongs to Malawi. I'm not sure whether we'll get anything from the kind of negotiations we have opened ourselves to. My only fear is that we may end up sharing the lake with Tanzania. Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Rejoice Shumba says they are waiting for feedback from former heads of state who are championing mediation talks. These former leaders are Botswana's Festus Mohai, South Africa's Tabombeki, and Joachim Chisano of Mozambique. Political communication lecturer from the Polytechnic and arm of the University of Malawi, Chimamosisi, thinks diplomacy is the best solution. I think uh, the best that the current administration can do is to continue with uh, our contact and dialogue, uh, knowing that uh, it is also important to keep good relations with uh, neighboring countries. And we also take note of the fact that uh, Tanzania has been becoming a reliable partner uh, in terms of our trade and investment uh, since uh, we use a number of their ports and we use uh, their corridors to actually import goods and export goods here in Malawi. Uh, it's good that we maintain good relations. However, the government should still be ready to pursue other avenues or other ways of resolving this. The, uh, the mediation being done by the former heads of state doesn't work out because uh, I don't think it would be a good thing for the Malawi government given to the demands of uh, Tanzania to take part of uh, our lake. Malawi has maintained over the years full ownership of the lake. Media reports say Tanzania still cares for the talks but would want to benefit from the lake. During his tenure, immediate past President Peter Mtarika called on nations to avoid causing rows over borders. Mutarika's predecessor Joyce Banda threatened to pull out of the talks, opting for the services of the International Criminal Court of Justice, ICCJ. George Mhangu, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> The time is now 17.29 Central African time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. Send us a WhatsApp message to plus 277 And you can also tweet us on at Channel Africa 1. This is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Magesi. Right now, though, it is time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Joalani Tulo with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an african perspective 
Good afternoon. Making headlines, leader of South Africa's opposition DA John Stianazen says it is time for South Africans to go back to work and start rebuilding the economy. Russia's health minister has dismissed international criticism of what the government in Moscow says is a new coronavirus vaccine as absolutely groundless. And finally, militants are reported to have seized a key port in Mozambique after days of fighting. For Channel Africa, I'm Jordani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A digital fundraising campaign will be launched this week to raise funds to cover the cost of data for South African non-profit organizations that are struggling financially as a result of COVID-19. Dubbed hashtag Keep Connecting, the campaign is initiated and led by Inyatelo, the South African Institute for Advancement. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Nazim Mohammed, the Executive Director of Inyatelo. Nazim, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, good afternoon, Samora, and good afternoon to your listeners. Now, Nazim, could you tell us what inspired the idea behind the hashtag Keep Connecting campaign and what makes it so unique? Well, you know, when we went into the shutdown period, uh, Inyatelo embarked on activities that would look at how we could work remotely. And we, in doing that, discovered that the costs of data was really expensive and to have our staff be operational, that we would have to cover those costs um, for, for them to remain safe and work online and remotely. And so in, in the exploration, we thought that it would be really helpful to look at how we can support other nonprofits to work remotely and safely and to find ways in which we could assist where they already were experiencing a financial crisis because of the shutdown period. All right. And how much have South African nonprofit organizations been impacted by this COVID-19 pandemic overall? You know, like the rest of the country, we really are struggling and there are many nonprofits that are about to close down or have closed down already, or they've had to furlough staff or retrench staff, give up the premises that they've been renting or owning because they, they don't have enough funding to continue to work as nonprofits. So we're in a, we're in a huge crisis, and there really is a need for, for greater support. We've seen government supporting small and medium businesses, but we haven't really seen the same level of support to nonprofits. Where we have received support, it's been for essential services, but not for the, the, the other work that nonprofits do um, in our communities. All right, so and uh, how will raising money for data help address the serious financial and operational challenges that these organizations keep experiencing? Well, there are really two reasons why Natello has embarked on this campaign. The one is that we are a learning organization. And if there are any positives about this COVID period, it's been how much learning has gone online and the fact that a lot of it is free. The, the issue, though, is about who has access to data. And so what we're seeing is a digital divide where inequality is a huge problem. And those people who have access to online learning are those who are more privileged and more well-off, whereas organizations and individuals who don't have much access to financial resources or the same levels of privilege, you know, won't access 
the online medium. And so Inatello really wants to support you know, access to learning on the one hand, but we also would like to, you know, to acknowledge the impact of working remotely, that it's only possible if you have um, the digital means to do so. If, you were going, if you're going to work safely and remotely, you need to have access to data or to Wi-Fi. All right. And how do you select the eligible organizations that will benefit from this campaign? Well, they, we are going to convert the, 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 whatever donations we get into data vouchers. And they, if there is a case for support, we will, we will provide support to that organization. Um, they just have to make a clear case for support, and we will provide this, the, the data vouchers to the organizations. All right. And how can people help to uh, protect nonprofit organizations and help them survive this pandemic? Well, the, you know, we've said that the campaign is not only about getting funding in. It is about getting funding in. But we'd also like to create awareness on the role of nonprofits and the kind of crisis we find ourselves in. So it's about that messaging that's important. And so we ask people who donate to also make a short video on why they believe, why they're donating and why they believe nonprofits play a role. We thought we'd also make it, you know, to add some light release to quite a dismal, dismal period in our lives by doing something fun. You know, we're saying dance for data or do it for data. You know, you can read a poem, you can do a rap, you can, you know, just do something that's, that, that brings some light relief to, to our communities, but make that positive contribution. Talk about nonprofits and then contribute um, in terms of funding for data. We are investigating contributions from, you know, we would like to speak to the cell phone companies about whether the data that people don't use and goes back to the cell phone companies, if they could redirect it to nonprofits. Um, it's a conversation we'd like to start, and it's a conversation that we hope would lead to a data infrastructure for nonprofits. We've seen universities negotiate, we've seen schools negotiate, and so we'd like to look at what it is that we can do to also benefit from, from you know, uh, uh, negotiations with the cell phone providers. All right, Nazim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Have a good day. You too. And that was Nazim Mohammed, the executive director of Inyatelo in South Africa, joining us on the line. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time, and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa, bringing you programming from an African perspective. As Kenya continues to fight COVID-19, more than 50,000 nurses and clinical officers have gone on strike in the country's 47 countries demanding better pay, unpaid salaries and improved safer working conditions. The strike comes shortly after 10 medical doctors, nurses and clinical officers died from COVID-19 and more than 700 of their colleagues tested positive for the pandemic. James Shimanula reports. 
Five months after the outbreak of COVID-19, Kenyan nurses and clinical officers are on strike to push for better pay and improved safer working conditions. The strike comes at a time when University of Nairobi medical researchers say by next month, Kenya will have more than 250,000 severe cases of COVID-19 pandemic. Seth Panyako is Secretary General of the Kenya Union of Nurses. This is how he describes salaries paid to nurses and clinical officers. They are being paid peanuts. And yet when they are struck with COVID-19, COVID-19 is not isolating. It is not saying you are a contract nurse, you are earning 20,000, you are a, a, lab, a lab person, you are earning 15,000 or 20,000. We will not strike you. They are going to strike someone earning 100,000. The effect of this infection is equal for everybody. And we are telling the government, work of equal value and equal risk must attract equal remuneration and equal risk allowance. Do not go back to work unless you are assured that you are safe and the government is taking care of you. Banyako explains laconically why the nurses and the clinical officers are now unable to work. You cannot work when you cannot buy food for your family. You have no money for transport to go and work. Your house is being locked. Also speaking about the strike staged by nurses and the clinical officers is Patterson Washira, chairman of the Kenya Union of Clinical Officers. We together with all health workers and other county public servants will bring this country to that was Patterson Washira, chairman of the Kenya Union of Clinical Officers. Meanwhile, a study carried out by University of Nairobi medical researchers shows that more than 100,000 patients have shown symptoms of the contagious disease and nearly 9,000 are to be admitted to hospitals. As of today, Wednesday, Kenya has recorded more than 27,000 cases of COVID-19. Medical experts say the strike by nurses and clinical officers paints a sudden picture of COVID-19 in Kenya. The experts say instead of the nurses and clinical officers being at the front line to fight the pandemic, they have abandoned the patients at their working stations at this hour of need. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South Africa has among the highest levels of intimate partner violence in the world, and that's according to the World Health Organization, WHO. Now, with the nationwide COVID-19 lockdown, many more women and young girls who are in abusive or violent situations are more trapped and isolated than ever. The Body Shop, a British cosmetic skincare and perfume company, is calling on South Africans to show their solidarity to those isolated with an abuser right now by sharing the hashtag #IsolatedNotAlone. The campaign aims to combat the increase in domestic violence due to COVID-19, spread awareness and offer counselling to victims. More from South African actress Gugu Gumede. First and foremost, as you said before, South Africa is one of the most leading countries with uh, the highest rate of gender-based violence. And I think it's very simple. The body shop cares and they care what happens to women, which is, um, you know, women are mainly their shoppers. And so they care what happens to them, especially during this very, very sad time of the pandemic. You know, temperatures are up, uh, everybody's feeling very emotional. And it seems as though during this time, this is when violence amongst women and children has increased rapidly. So the Body Shop just wanted to help with the initiative. And they also wanted to support a local women-led organization yes. called 1828 Vivus. Because every product, the hand product that you purchase right now, every tan rand, 
goes to that organization. Mm. So it was just a way to say, you're not alone, we're with you, and we care about you. Now, the Body Shop has previously campaigned on violence against young women and girls. Talk to us about the need you know, to, uh, for this campaign right now, uh, with everyone uh, self-isolating at home to stop mm. the spread of COVID-19. Listen, I think it was a very important time. I don't think that there's any time that is important as now, again, um, because with everybody at home self-isolating, people are very emotional. And I think that there was, there's no better time to do it than now. Uh, when people are listening, when people are also they're isolating, they're feeling like they're alone. And you're finding a lot of women, a lot of children that are coming up and talking about their depression, talking mm. about the, the mental state that they're in. And I feel like they, have, they couldn't be a better time to do it than now. And I know that they've done it before, but it seems like the statistics are still showing that this is not a problem that's going away. Instead, it is rising in South Africa. And so we still need to do a lot more to teach people, to educate people about what is happening and also just to educate them on how to make it stop. And this is a conversation that needs to be had by everyone, you know, both men and women and both children as well, because we need everybody as a collective, if we can even think about um, lowering the numbers of the cases that we currently have in South Africa. Mm. Now, speaking of uh, educating people, you know, according to the UN women, men who witness or experience violence against women as children are more likely to perpetrate intimate partner violence in their adult relationships. How do we go about educating boys and men to champion girls and women's safety? How is this uh, campaign tackling the education side of things? I think mainly, you know, going on social media, everybody's on social media right now. Everybody is at home. Everybody's tuned in to what's happening. And by taking the campaign to social media, a lot more people, a lot more eyes are fixated on it. And I think that the first thing that we need to do is to have this conversation with men. So many times it's been women that are mostly involved with such initiatives. And men are taking the back seat. And here's the thing. It is the men who are perpetrating these types of crimes and we need to have a conversation with the men as well and by putting it out there on social media having i think if you also go to the body shop page and you and you see the number of people that were involved in this initiative it was not just a female-led initiative it was also an initiative that was taken in by men they also were posting about it they also were trying to educate other males on it and i think that for this conversation to be had you mainly need the men involved because the conversation needs to be had to them specifically. So I think we need to firstly know that we can't just say we're going to be able to eradicate this by just saying stop, stop, but instead to take in the conversation with the men and to say, okay, let's first see where this started. So then how do we fix it? How do we go about making it better? have a conversation with not just the victims, but also the perpetrators. Kuku has a powerful role model and mentor for young women. What are the signs of an abusive relationship? I mean, how do you spot someone who is in an abusive relationship? Listen, I don't think that it would be fair for me to say how do you spot the signs, you know, of an abusive relationship since I haven't been in one. I think the best thing for me to say would be for women who are in those type of relationships, we're here, you're not alone. And to open up the space to say to them, you can come and you can talk about it. And we as a collective can try to help you. You know, mm. such organizations, again, like 1828, are trying to help those women. And so by us lending our voices to the cause and by us getting people aware of such organizations, it is opening up the space and the platform for them to say, you can speak to us. 
But I don't think that it would be fair for me to say what are the signs because there are different signs. I don't think that, you know, there's only one or two signs that you can spot. You know, people go through and they deal with pain differently. I think for us, it is just to say to them, listen, whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Just as the campaign says, you're not alone. You're isolated, but you're not alone in theory. We're here with you. And we are here to support you. Yes. Now, you were raised by a powerful and a strong woman who taught you that you are unbreakable and, you know, gave you the <laughs> confidence to believe in yourself. In this Women's Month, what advice would you like to share with uh, victims and also survivors of uh, intimate partner violence? I really don't think that there is anything better to say than to say, I'm here, I'm with you. I may not be going through what you're going through right now, but there's something bigger, there's something better and higher that causes for one another to feel empathy, you know, Uh, both empathy and sympathy, actually. But it's just to really, really say and to reiterate that you're not alone. Speak up, you know, tell a friend, tell a friend that knows someone else that can help, you know, report it. And I know that it's very, very difficult of us to say this now, especially when we're locked in with these people in our homes and we don't really have space. And we, we, some people, they're financially dependent on, the, on their partners. They're yes. emotionally dependent on their partners. They're afraid that if I do report it, I might find myself out on the streets. And this is the worst time to find yourself in that predicament. But I do think that there's nothing that is worth risking a woman's life like that. A woman is a pillar of the nation. A woman is a pillar of any home. And I feel in order for us also as women to stop it here with us, to stop it not continuing onto our children, we need to be able to raise our voices up and say, I'm going through it, and I want help to deal with it. So this is, I think, this for me was just the greatest initiative to try to tell my sisters out there, to try to say, you're not alone, I'm here with you, and you can speak about it. And that's South African actress Gugu Gumede on the line talking to us about the Body Shops campaign, hashtag isolated not alone, that aims to combat the increase in domestic violence due to COVID-19, spread awareness and offer counselling to victims. If you are a victim of gender-based violence or know someone who is, uh, the Stop Gender Violence helpline is 0800-150-150. That's 0800-150-150 or star 120 star 7867 hash. The National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Channel Africa Broadcasting from South Africa will continue to bring you news and current affairs during this period, whereby a 21-day lockdown is effective. We will keep you updated and informed during this period as we bring your news and current affairs from an African perspective. And now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Nosetla Zuma.
Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Practicing attorney representing the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, Madimbe Mahoshwa, has told the Zondo Commission that the Prasa Legal team was not part of the settlement with CIA to pay the company over $2 million US dollars in claim. This follows allegations against the former chairperson of Prasa's interim board, Judge Nana Makubela, that she pushed through the settlement despite the internal legal team being against it. Mohashwa explains. I would accept that proposition, Chair, if he means it in a sense that perhaps the legal department was not aware yes. about, about what was happening yes. about the settlements at the time. Yes. I don't have a problem with, yeah. with that proposition. The West African nation's statistics office says Ghana's consumer price inflation rose to 11.4% year-on-year in July from 11.2% in previous month, driven by higher food and transport prices. Ghana's inflation has risen in recent months above the central bank's targeted range of 8% plus or minus 2% points due to the impact of the novel coronavirus outbreak that has hit the cocoa, gold and all independent economy. Samuel NM, head of the statistics service, said food price inflation continued to dominate during the month, adding food inflation stood at 13.7% compared with 9.7% for nine food inflation. Ghana's Cocoa Board says the country expects cocoa output of around 900,000 tons in the 2020-2021 season up to 5.8% from the forecast for 2019-2020. The report also says the Cocoa Board planned to raise $1.3 billion US dollars in syndicated loans to fund cocoa purchases during 2020-2021 from a consortium of banks and financial institutions with the government as a guarantor. The loan will carry annual interest of one month labor plus a 1.75% a commitment fee of 0.62% per year and an upfront flat fee of 1.25%. Ghana is the world's second biggest cocoa producer. Its growing season runs from October to September. Macau has taken its first steps on the road to recovery as the casino capital starts issuing tourist visas again. Asia's gambling hub became a ghost town after coronavirus lockdowns saw a severe downturn in visitors. Macau authorities said they will slowly start handing out tourist visas from Wednesday to bring gamblers back. According to estimates, casino operators have been losing $15 million US dollars daily in expenses. Visas for both individuals and group tours from mainland China will be restored in phases. Macau, like Hong Kong, is a special administrative region of China. Authorities did not say when visas will be made available to tourists wanting to travel from Macau to outside China. And South Africa's Department of Public Enterprise says it will soon appoint a smaller board of directors at SAA. It says the new board will then appoint the airline's new executive management team. In a statement, the department says it has identified a transaction advisor to assist the department in transaction planning and assessing unsolicited offers from private sector funders and private equity investors. The DPE has welcomed the attraction of a mix of local and international investor groups to provide the new airline with technical, financial and operational expertise. Naledi Ngobo reports.
The department has once again pointed out that the voluntary retrenchments will see the retrenchment of all employees, with only a 1,000 employees remaining to start the new airline. It notes that a further 1,000 employees will be placed on a temporary training layoff scheme so that they can be absorbed into the new airline as and when new positions become available. It says it envisions the new airline to operate an efficient and modern aircraft fleet with a network structure that allows for connectivity at high Lady Noble, SABC News, Johannesburg. And for your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 378.10 Nigerian Nara, 11.56 Botswana Bula, 107.20 Kenyan Shilling, and 18.36 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar is trading at 5.44 Brazilian Roll, 73.10 Russian Ruble, 74.52 Indian Rupee, 6.94 Chinese Yuan, and at 17.56 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1,000. $940 and platinum at $946 per ounce. And the price of Brent crude oil is at $45.43 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosikizuma. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective.